You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 205. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Sklar. Welcome, everyone. Welcome. You have reached another Local Maximum. Today is Monday, December 27th, and I am feeling better than I have in a pretty long while. I haven't talked about careers much since I quit the rat race three months ago, but you'll notice that people have such a div- uh, divergent views on this subject, all the way from skeptical of all the corporate doublespeak that leads to nihilism to like the, the true believers, what my, uh, what my next guest calls the idealist. And today I want to share an interview from someone who is very interesting and unique on this subject. My next guest is an entrepreneur and engineer who wrote a fascinating book called Developer Hegemony a few years ago, and we had a great discussion about it. Let's have a listen. Eric Diedrich, you've reached the local maximum. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So I got your book right here. It's called Developer Hegemony. Uh, Your book was recommended to me by a listener after I did my episode on leaving Foursquare recently. And, you know, after reading through some of it, I'm almost done, or I'm like halfway done, so maybe I have a, a run, but, but I could see why they recommended it, because, uh, so, I, so would I be correct, incorrect to assume that you're getting some uh, word of mouth on this? I do, yeah, actually, the, um, I wrote it on LeanPub, you know, kind of at the request almost of a lot of people in my audience, um, when I used to blog a lot on deadtech.com, hey, you should write a book, you know, put some of the ideas that I was putting forth into a book, which I did. It was kind of fun to write the book in installments with people reading and giving feedback. So we published it, um, did, you know, a launch. It hadn't occurred to me um, to really like prepare for it um, Hmm. properly as a book launch until shortly before I did a book launch. So I figured out how to launch a book, launched it. It did pretty well. It went to one of the bestseller categories on Amazon, which then in turn causes Amazon to market the book. So since then, um, it's kind of, there's word of mouth that happens. And then I think it gets recommended to people. Like it just keeps selling over the months. And, um, you know, I'm grateful for that. I find that pretty cool. Yeah. Um, No, actually that, that leads me to another question, which is, uh, you know, before we get into the contents of the book, like, was this the first one you wrote? Did you think you'd be writing a book when you were uh, a, a software engineer? You know, I always would have thought it would be on the table when I was growing up. I thought I'd be a novelist. Um, oh, interesting. I was kind of equal opportunity when it came to academic subjects. Got into computer science and no regrets there, but um, I always did kind of want to write. It wasn't the first book, but um, I had one that was about unit testing in .NET. So more technical um, type. Yeah. And then there was one, but the way this had happened was I had blog post series and a friend of mine was doing at the time, a small, like lifestyle design kind of business startup. Um, he called it blog into book, like essentially taking series of blog posts and turning them into books, which we did. Um, so it wasn't really like properly writing of a book, but those have, you know, sold over the years and done some business too. So, um, <clears throat> this was, I guess was technically the third book that I had had in some form of publication. Yeah. Okay, cool. So yeah, I've gotten through, I I feel like I've read through carefully all the complaints section, which I love, but then there's the answer section, which I still need to read, which I've only skimmed. But I I feel like the problems with work today really rang true for me. And uh, one example that I was thinking about is the engineering ladder. 
uh, that a lot of companies have, you know, software engineer one, two, three, all that, <laughs> et cetera. Um, I've actually had Camille Fournier on the show, who is a CTO who's designed the engineering ladder that many companies use. And I actually, I, I respect her a lot, but uh, you know, I always regretted what I called like playing engineering ladder at work. And, um, you know, that's just, that's often what they tell us to do. Oh, you're, you're whatever level you are, you want to be on the, the, the other level. And it just seemed like an inordinate amount of my time was spent thinking about that problem. And then, you know, when it's all said and done, it, it just feels like, it, it feels like meaningless. So, it, I, I don't know. It sounds like you came to a similar conclusion. Is that how you would put it or would you put it differently? And how, when and how did you come to that conclusion? If memory serves, so it's been a while since I wrote the book. I had to go back and reread it, but yeah. um, I don't know that I've reread it in probably four years. I'm, so hopefully this lines up with the section well, where I was talking I'm, about my own journey right, through I'm, early career. Yeah, I'm guessing, is there there was there a time when you, was there a moment when you grew sour on playing engineering ladder, as I call it? Uh, so to the best, you know, I'm hoping this lines up with what I said in the book. The, to That's the best okay. of my recollection, it was something that happened kind of in stages. <laughs> yeah. We're going to line everything up with the book and you're going to get a score at the end. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it happened in stages as I started to yeah. realize that being, you know, let's say the best engineer or whatever you want to call it. I'm not saying that I was like the best engineer, but that like programming skill didn't necessarily correlate with advancement that you could mm. um, put on, you know, a particular set of um or, uh, you know, achieve a particular set of things. Like you pull off an impressive technical feat, deliver something, create a beautifully crafted engineered piece of code, make use of some, you know, theoretical algorithm. I remember in my first job, like implementing a directed acyclical graph to like do something really cool. So you do all these things and your boss is like, yeah, you know, that's pretty good. Maybe if you keep this up, you'll be software engineer three in a couple of years. That like right. there was this... Um, I guess that puts the focus thing. on the, it puts the focus on the number. Yeah. So the, the things you might achieve didn't really like line up with advancement. And I started to realize, I think that um, being good at programming didn't necessarily get you much of anything. And so that's where things kind of started to get off the rails mentally for me. And then I also realized at the same time, oh, well, if you really want that next, you know, rung on the ladder, you just quit your job and go somewhere else and then you'll get it right away. And so it started to lead to this disillusionment to, to see that this was a game. We were sold this bill of goods that there's this like meritocracy and you have to ascend it, but that's not actually how things worked. Um, right. So I don't know if there was a specific moment when that happened, but I, I do recall kind of doing the math and realizing um, like, oh, at the current rate I'm going of software engineer one to two to three, like, you know, I'll be the CEO, I guess, if I keep going this route when I'm like 90. <laughs> something doesn't work out here. If I want to keep advancing in my career, you have to kind of like cheat, let's call it. Yeah. Well, I, I, I was thinking a lot of the times they'll say in the, in the engineering ladder, there's, there's soft skills, which I don't know exactly how you, um, how you measure those uh, communication skills. One that always got me was they always said, you need to be a multiplier, not an adder. And that was like some kind of um, as if they could measure that. Uh, and that, that always, frustrated me uh, a, a lot. Um, so I, 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 
Yeah, I, I don't know if you have any comments on 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 those kind of statements that they make. I, I feel like how could it all be bullshit? There must be like some, you know, uh, something that they're looking for specifically. You mean in terms of like what leadership is looking for to advance engineers through the ranks? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I feel like okay. I I feel like I I've given up on engineering ladder, but I also feel like there's got to be some. You know, there it, it can't all be like magic, uh, you know, incantation of just um, we're just gonna say. I mean, maybe it is just to justify whatever they want to do uh, to begin with. I mean, that would be the most cynical view. But um, I, I, where 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 would you fall? Like, do you think that there are, there is something to be said for like? you know, hey, we care about these soft skills or we care about these uh, multiplication versus addition skills, which is just like, you know, you make everyone around you better by writing your software, which is, again, hard to measure. Uh, but, um, or, or, or like, how cynical did you get? That, that's what I want to get. How deep down the rabbit hole? I think, uh, my goodness, uh, I'm trying to so the the problem that I have, what I what I remember talking about a lot in the book was the idea of like the Taylor-esque management structure, like the pyramid-shaped right. management structure that's command and control centric. And I think that what tends to happen is that the organization grows so large and bureaucratic that understanding the actual value that anybody brings to the organization, if you're in an organization with a thousand engineers, what you know, take engineer number 563 how much um, does that person help the company's bottom line? It's pretty much unknowable. So I think a lot of the things that companies use to judge engineers are kind of like proxies and really far removed proxies from value. So with something like, you know, the soft skills, I, I think maybe if I'm being as minimally cynical as possible, what you don't want there and what I used to see a lot in my consulting travels is somebody who is toxic. Um, So (laughs) there is value in not having a toxic person dragging everyone around them down. And there would certainly be value in somebody that would be a force multiplier. If you could measure such a thing, somebody who made everyone around them way more effective, but to the degree that anyone's actually capable of measuring that I'm fairly skeptical. I think that in typical corporate structures with these types of ladders, what you're seeing for is usually an optimizing for a floor. So what we're really after is not to hire absolute duds rather than to hire, um, you know, truly like high performers, not that you wouldn't take a high performer, but we're going to talk about a process where, yeah, you know, we only hire rock stars or whatever, but really what you're doing is just trying not to hire people that are going to tank the whole operation. Gotcha. Gotcha. So yeah, uh, coming back to the pyramid, I remember, you know, you broke the employees down into uh, three, archetypes, which I kind of feel like I personally sw- swap back and forth between them and other people I talked about, but you have the, uh, the pragmatists, the idealists and the opportunists. So, uh, maybe you could go over real quick, like who those are and, um, you know, why you broke that down and how someone can tell what they are. Oh, sure. So, um, I'm trying to think of how to summarize this most quickly. So first of all, there's a guy named Venkat Rao that had written um, on a site called Ribbon Farm, this thing called the Gervais Principle. So I took that and riffed off it and renamed some of his ideas. But loosely put, 
the pragmatists, that's usually where most of your engineers are going to reside. And the pragmatist is at the lowest level of an organization. Typically, those are individual contributors. And they, you know, may take some pride in their work, but basically they make this deal with the organization where, you know, I'm not really aspiring to go into management or become the CEO or anything like that. I enjoy my craft. I'm a technician. I come to work. I do my thing. And I don't have a lot of designs to rise within the organization. I recognize that salaried employment probably isn't the greatest deal in the world. I'm putting in my 40 for the most part and just kind of trying to earn a living and finding meaning in other places in my life. The next archetype, which you typically find more around the middle of the organization, is what I'd call the idealist. And the idealist is somebody that really believes in sort of the mythology and the theory of the organization. And they really believe that putting in 60 hour weeks and, you know, just giving it your all for the company overperforming is what leads you to the top of the organization. And in reality, that isn't what leads you to the top of an organization, but it's, you know, a nice way to, um, you know, if you're a cynical person at the top of the organization, manufacturing this culture and getting people to overperform is a nice way to get a lot of, you know, I guess, value, if you will, out of people. Gotcha. Um, and then the opportunist is the person or people who are kind of destined for the top of the organization. And I think of those as people who recognize that the organization is kind of a fiction, that um, really any organization is all about the relationships of the people. And the way you get to the top of the organization is by essentially viewing yourself as a free agent operating and getting ahead and, you know, looking after your own self-interest. And in the book, um, so it's not that like anybody, um, that the, the organization is strictly sorted according to those archetypes, but the opportunist tends to float to the top of the organization. The pragmatist tends to stay at the bottom and the idealist floats a little bit up because they're overperforming. So somebody will promote them, but they're not especially strategic. So they don't make it. They're kind of on this endless treadmill where they think they'll, make it to the top, but they never do. Yeah. Um, so that's it in a nutshell. And in the book, I like to think, or I liked to think of them not so much in terms of their failings, but like, what is the organization really taking from them? So with, with the pragmatist, it's kind of the hope of advancement. You just give up like, look, I'm not cut out for management. Um, there's only a certain amount I can advance. I'm going to yeah. take my pay and go home and that's fine. The idealists, you know, this structure takes from them perspective. They lose sight of all the surplus value they're creating for the organization. All the kids' birthday parties they're missing with their 60-hour work weeks. They just lose perspective on the value of their labor. And the opportunists, it's kind of a lonely game, you know, to float through the organization by yourself. So they're kind of giving up, um, I guess, like ethical certainty in what they're doing. They figure out that the best way, you know, I kind of threw it out there early in the discussion like that the best way to get ahead is to job hop you know if you're not happy with your current role at your company the absolute most efficient way to be happy with your role is to quit and get hired higher somewhere else yeah yeah when, when i think about for myself now could you be an opportunist without uh, being at the top of the company or without being you know headed there so to speak oh i certainly think so i mean i think of it more as a mentality i, I think of the the most telling thing about an opportunist is to have sort of a mercenary view and to not really buy into the idea of company culture. You value relationships, but you almost as an opportunist start acting as if you were a freelancer inside of your company and okay. you can do that anywhere. And it truly, you know, nobody starts at the top of the organization unless maybe your, you know, parents <laughs> gave you the company and you inherited right. it or something. 
No, yeah, because I feel like I've definitely done that where I, I almost like started my career as an idealist, like, okay, I'm just going to outwork everyone. And mm-hmm. then at some point I realized, hey, if I just chill out as a pragmatist, I get the same kind of reviews, I get the same kind of advancement. And so, but now yeah. I'm like much healthier. <laughs> and then at some point I realized, you know what, I could just, let me just get the most autonomous uh, role that I could find in the company. Let me just see, let, let me just secede from the engineering management structure as much as possible. And so maybe that's kind of an opportunist like um, behavior. Uh, absolutely. And I think, you know, if pressed, I'd say most people start their careers as idealists, like that's the default position. You get right. hired at a company, it's exciting, you're grateful, you believe in all of this stuff, you know, work hard and you get ahead and we're a meritocracy. You know, you'd have no reason to doubt that. It's more that the battle scars of seeing maybe that's not how things actually work causes some people to say like, you know, enough of yeah. this, I'm just going to put in my 40 and not worry about it. Or, um, you know, to start developing these career hacks, if you will, right, 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 out of the organization, quitting, getting hired somewhere else, et cetera. Right, right, right. I still feel like, I mean, not the part of idealist where you're like overworking for, for nothing, but I, I still feel like there's a part of me like, Hey, if like a, you know, a CEO comes up with a, a really brilliant idea or like a founder comes up with a really brilliant idea, you know, and, um, or they just came up with a really brilliant way to work. I'm like, okay, yeah, I want to, I want to go along with this. I want to, I want to do what I can to make this work. So mm-hmm. I don't know. Uh, th- there might be a, a, a good side to idealists as well, even though as I think you wrote in the book, like they get almost the worst deal, uh, economically. Yeah, I, I would say so. I mean, I think so typically idealists put in long hours and they really commit themselves to the company and the amount of, you know, like career advancement that that tends to generate is I think on average far outpaced by the amount of extra hours you're putting in. Um, but in terms of, you know, if you hitch on with like a founder or, or somebody whose vision you really believe in, I think there's room in the world to believe in someone else's vision without it being this idealist who has seated perspective. I think it's uniquely the command and control style of organization that's really badly suited for knowledge work. So it's that organization that creates these, um, uh, you know, situations where I think people are less than the sum of their parts. If you were in a smaller, more lean organization, and I think, you know, these days I'm the CEO of a small business and I like to think I'm doing my absolute best to create an organization that doesn't have idealists. Um, so I think you can create work structures where you view each other more as partners. And sure, if somebody has a good idea that you believe in, you're picking up an oar and rowing and you're working together. Yeah, that's absolutely possible. Right. Okay. So it's important to distinguish between idealism in general and the idealist archetype that you're putting forward in the book. Yeah. So one of the, I guess, downsides of using those terms that mean other things is that when I talk about the pragmatist in that framework, it's a different thing than like the casual use of the word. Same with idealist and opportunist. So I think of those as like an organizational idealist versus just the pure meaning of the word idealist. Right, right. I don't, I don't know if I want to bring this up, but this whole discussion reminded me of a, an episode that I did last year. Uh, Sometimes we do like current events and we go over the tech news here on Mm -hmm. the show with, uh, with, with Aaron. And, And there was one where there was this company base camp that had this big political blow up and like a lot of the company quit. And when we were reading about, you know, what was going on at the company, we found out that a third of the employees were on the diversity committee. And so, A, they 
like, I'm thinking like, what's the motivation there? Like, why do so many people want to, you know, join all of these, uh, you know, all of these committees, which are are probably not that exciting uh, to be on, um, and but that get very political. Like, um, is that, uh, you know, is that a company full of idealists or full of too many opportunists? Uh, You know, is there anything we could say about what might be going on in a situation like that? Hmm. So I I wouldn't categorize people joining a committee like that as an organizational opportunist because the organizational opportunist is extremely savvy at office politics. Right. And putting yourself out there for personal causes in the strict mercenary sense of career advancement is not optimal. It makes me think of the quip uh, that was attributed to Michael Jordan. I don't know if he said this or not, but where he didn't get involved in some kind of politics back in his playing days. And he said something off the cuff, like, hey, Republicans buy shoes too. The organizational opportunist is going to keep any and all personal politics that don't advance the career very close to the vest. Now, if those people, I, I, I almost think those people are actual idealists, potentially more so than corporate idealists. Because to some okay, extent, yeah. the corporate idealist is a company man or a company woman. And right, so that's what we're talking about, along. using the company as, as like a vehicle for your personal activism rather than activism right. within the company. Um, so I but, might think of those in the company as pragmatists. They're kind of, you know, yeah. I mean, I, this sounds so mercenary, but it, it, you could almost think of that style of personal activism as far as the company is concerned as almost a hobby. And so they're elevating their hobby above their career. And I would, if pressed, categorize that as a pragmatist type of behavior. But I don't mean in any way to trivialize like very real issues and things that are important sure. to people. I'm just looking at it through the lens of this. Framework. Yeah. Well, I, I feel like th- there might be some people who, who are on committees like that. And I'm sure, you know, I've tried to be in meetings and stuff that maybe I didn't be in where you're like, oh, I feel like I want to get seen or I feel like... um you know, I, I feel like if you get on this committee, you're at a higher status within the company. And I don't know, maybe those are not always the best reasons to uh, to do these things. Hmm. Uh, it probably wouldn't be what I would choose to do. I mean, maybe, I'd, you know, I'm just trying to put myself, it's been a long time since I was yeah. <laughs> working for someone else. But uh, <laughs> I could see a scenario like I think of, and I would think of the opportunist thinking of the world as very relationship oriented. So if you were looking to cultivate a relationship with the VP or um, somebody in the C-suite that you thought could really act as a steward for your career, and you perceived that being on a certain committee were important to that person, that might be, again, mercenary-wise, a solid play. You know, as I think about it, I would want to throw out that I think there's a lot of courage involved in like taking a stand against your organization's culture sure on the basis of your personal ethics and and politics like i think that's a very brave thing to do because it's categorically not good for your career but you're drawing you know a line in the sand and i yeah. think you know there's something I, to be said for that i've seen it happen surprisingly enough like i've seen people push back on on things like uh privacy and and cutting corners and security. I've, I've seen engineers being like, not going to do it and winning. And, uh, you know, it's sort of like, Hey, it's, uh, it's, um, it, it makes me feel good when I see that. Uh, you know, I kind of think of it as, is a, a product of the dysfunction 
of some of the things that or some of the ways that we have to work. If you have to choose between, um, you know, say you work at a company and you have serious concerns about how they handle user data, privacy, that kind of thing. If you have to choose between advancing your career and having a principle like that, the reason you feel like you have to make that choice is because the salaried world basically takes all of your available time and you have one entity that's responsible for paying your mortgage. So it takes a lot of bravery to take a stand there because you have so much at risk. Right. And there seems to be something like mildly dysfunctional about that. When I think of the opportunist as a freelancer within the organization, a freelancer who's savvy about their work is going to look at it and say, I have one single whale client. That's not a great state of affairs. That's a lot of risk. I should have, you know, four, five, six, 10 clients, and then there's not so much risk. So I don't know what the world looks like to de-risk things for employees, but um, yeah, I kind of view that as, as a, a thing that's inherently suboptimal about employment where you have to consider my principles versus my livelihood. Right, right, right. Uh, when I think about all the, all, all the times, like I've said no, or, or, or my team said no, it's always been like, you know, we're saying no to management in the name of the people who are owners, you know, basically mm. saying that's, that's not really what they mean. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's if 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 you had kind of a company that was run and owned by people who were doing all these things you didn't like, then it's kind of like, you know, you really gotta you really gotta leave at that point. I almost think. Um, so okay, let's uh, let's move on to you know, hey, w- what's the um, um, well, what what's the answer? I don't know if we've des- described the problem specifically, other than hey, maybe this, maybe I don't like this state of affairs. Maybe I want to be more independent. Uh, you know, the book is called uh, "Developer Hegemony." Where's the hegemony in these companies? So, what's uh, 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 what are some suggestions that you have for software developers? What, what did you do specifically? Um, and and I'm sure maybe some of this applies to other. Uh, uh, people as well, like designers and product managers and people like that? Yeah, I think it's fair to apply this to knowledge workers across the board. Um, What I predicted back then, and I still think holds true, would be that you would start to see an exodus of engineers, or let's call it knowledge workers in general, from large enterprise companies and in the engineering space in particular, especially from companies that treat software development as a cost center instead of like tech companies. so right, I generally right. think organizations, and this was, I was at the time doing a lot of um, engineering management consultant consulting in Fortune 500 companies. And what I would come, the conclusion I would come to over and over again at those companies is kind of fatalistic. I'm like, you know what you guys should do is just give up, forget your agile transformation, forget your DevOps transfer, like whatever you're doing, forget it. Just stop let all these people, you know, go about their lives and, you know, buy startups or farm the work out to, you know, custom app dev body shops, but you are not going to be able to do this internally. And so I saw maybe this exodus happening where um, software engineering and the kind of innovation it requires doesn't seem to go well in large organizations, even large tech organizations over the course of time, you know, maybe the FANG companies. I mean, those start to look more like, you know, manufacturing companies than scrappy startups. And you wind up with all this Byzantine procedure and stuff, and it's hard to innovate in yeah. those spaces. But, you but go they're never going to, they're never going to give up their engineers in a way that like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the first type of company you're talking about, not fortune 500, but I'm, th- I'm thinking about a company like, 
Oh, I shouldn't. I shouldn't say because then someone could be like, that company isn't like that. But I'm thinking like a, a retail company, like maybe Target, you know, like you don't need, maybe uh, maybe you don't need so many in-house type people. Right. But like Google is not going to be like, okay, we're, we're farming out. Or so, you know, you need people there. And Foursquare, where I was, you need people there long-term who know what the tech does. So, I mean, my thought was people would leave, especially where it's a cost center, but in general, that people would leave. And I think they ought to leave. Because I, I would think that small groups of engineers operating in much more lean fashion, and by the way, mm. without the legal lawsuit profile that a large company has, right. that's where your innovation is going to happen. So the engineer is going to be happier without eight layers of management on top of them. Right. Uh, they're going to be able to innovate and do things. So I think what I was getting at, the solution that I have in mind, is that I think engineers are fundamentally better off as freelancers or banding together in small firms that, you know, in the book, I call this the efficiency firm. Like we are professional automators with some kind of niche. Um, so that's what I saw happening. And I don't know, I had some intent um, after writing the book, uh, I was kind of walking away from the management consulting life to, you know, maybe create more content or build something to help people do that. I wound up kind of going in a completely different direction um, uh, as fate would have it. But these days I'm starting to give more thought to it. I, I see a lot of solution and optionality. So like cultivating a side hustle, not agreeing mm. to egregious non-compete agreements, you know, mm. do something else on the side, have other options, do some moonlighting, do some freelancing, you know, if you have the risk tolerance for it. But that's where I think the solution lies is essentially opting out of these you know, soul crushing structures where yeah. <laughs> there's all this management and all this ladder on top of you and, you know, advancement happens glacially. It, it reminds me of, I, I've been talking to some people recently who, who have, who are at like, you know, small firms and they say, well, we, we developed this open source software and we have clients that we, uh, you know, that, 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 that we develop it for it. And they're telling me it works pretty well for them. So it's like, you know, no, you know, basically just what eight, nine developers or something like that. I love that model. I mean, you know, build something, have it gain momentum, offer services around it. You know, in the interceding years since I've written the book, um, I've learned a lot about business, you know, building one and growing it. Um, yeah. So I have more opinions on, on how to find niches and how to consult and all sorts of things. And that's a, I mean, one of the things a lot of people struggle with when they leave the engineering org chart is like, what do I do now? The most right. natural thing is kind of like hired gun freelancing, but it can be hard leaving a big company and finding a niche and kind of flipping into an entrepreneur mindset. But yeah, a tried and true play would be to build something open source, offer services around it. That's a great one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what else do you recommend? I know you have a lot of lists of things like in the book, um, but what would you recommend these days uh, in terms of people who are not necessarily ready to leave their career, but things that they can do now uh, to sort of help them, I don't know, get a leg up or feel less stuck as it, as it were, or, you know, maybe um, uh, feel less crushed by the organization. Sure. So uh, one of the first things I would do, if you're working at a company that puts a lot of restrictions on your spare time, the first thing I might do is think about an exit plan from that. So if you're working at Megacorp and they have something, you know, the way a lot of big companies do, that's like anything you ever do on company property or in your own time or anything, we own it. Um, you know, maybe think about not going off on your own, but going to work for a company that doesn't make you do something like that, puts no restrictions on what you do in your spare time. And then from there, 
if you're looking to go a pretty, you know, risk minimizing route, you could start to moonlight in some capacity, um, you know, create content on the side or do small app dev projects or maybe build a little SaaS and get your feet wet in your spare time, you know, not killing yourself or anything, but like do something with some kind of business interest. So I don't mean endlessly creating a piece of open source software that you're tinkering with and adding features to, because there's no like profit motive there, but like, you know, moonlight, um, build a SaaS and try to sell it, write a book, like do something and get that first taste of earning income and earning revenue through something that isn't an employer. And I think that's powerful. It develops some good skills and it can start to give you a form of confidence, you know, and alongside of that, I would suggest to anyone who's up for it, incorporate, um, you know, form an LLC. It's actually not that hard to do. I once recorded a video of myself uh, filing for one in like 40 minutes. Um, So those are things you can do without really even taking the plunge that build a lot of confidence, kind of expose you to something new. Right, right. Uh, there's, there's a thing you said before where, uh, that, that just popped into my mind where like, you know, companies have this 20 year trend. There's, they're always transitioning to agile and it feels like they've been doing it for 20 (laughs) years. So, uh, it's almost like the, if there was a new, if there was a remake of office space, uh, today, which is like a a generation later, basically, uh, which is kind of crazy. Uh, you would, (laughs) You would definitely have uh, you would definitely have that that in it. Um, all right, maybe. Well, before we go, uh, actually, can you tell us a little bit about the the firm you currently are are, are at or uh, founded? Um, you know, what what do you guys do, and and what would you say is like like give us like the give us like the quick pitch? Oh sure, um, my current business is called Hit Subscribe, and it's absolutely unrelated to anything I've really talked about. But basically I used to write, I have a blog, deadtech.com. I don't post a ton there anymore because I'm pretty busy, but that's where the book came out of. um, And that was where I had a pretty big following and everything. When I was doing my management consulting in particular, companies started to come to me through that blog and say, Hey, would you be willing to write blog posts for our company blog, you know, for dev tools? So more and more, I started to write, content for pay. And it was fun. I had nothing better to do in my hotel room. And after enough companies came to me and, you know, every time I named a price, they were like, sure. Um, I started to think about doing that, you know, for a living, like, Hey, there's a business here. So my wife and I teamed up, she's an editor by trade and was decent, you know, with like graphic design. So we decided to offer um, content as, you know, a full service business and flipped all of my freelance blogging clients into our first customers of that business. The intent was always for my wife to run that and it would be a nice compliment to the consulting I was doing, but that business really took off and that's called hit subscribe. Um, We have a lot of customers and a lot of folks writing for us. And basically we've kept the original idea there, which is instead of marketers talking at engineers, we enlist engineers And they're the ones writing the content and helping with the content strategy. And it turns out engineers are a lot better at reaching other engineers than people with no engineering background. So it's been successful. Um, We do, you know, for anyone who's listening, that's interested, um, you know, we take on authors, you can have a side hustle writing blog post for hit subscribe. And also more recently we've launched a community, which has kind of brought things full circle. I started actually to give away a PDF of the book for anyone who wants it in, in the community for free. And, um, 
Beyond that, we're building resources and community events there to kind of help people get a little more optionality. So we have guest uh, speakers that we do interviews with of success stories of people going off on their own, and you can ask business questions in the community. So that's what I'm up to these days. I'm the CEO of that business. We actually have, I want to say something like 250 authors and growing in our pool. So it's been fun. Awesome. Yeah, sounds fun. All right. So uh, any last thoughts on uh, what we spoke about today? And uh, where can people find you? I'll put all the links on my show notes page, as well as a link to the book developer hegemony. Uh, yeah. So uh, last thoughts and, and, uh, and where can people go? So I guess, um, you know, it's interesting to revisit the book and, and, and think back to what I was saying. It's interesting to me that not a lot has like changed in my thinking of it. Mm. Um, I guess my, you know, if you're a lot of people who have um, read the book and then maybe presented it to their friends have said like people, you know, meet it with some skepticism if they're, you know, well ensconced in, in their employment and enjoying their job. So I guess the thing I would say to anybody, whether you're skeptical of what I have to say or not, is like, just keep an eye out for optionality, you know, are you, is your career advancing the way you think it ought to? And maybe is there something else out there? Um, you know, cause I think it's really easy, especially in the engineering world for companies to kind of gamify our careers in front of us. And you get mm. kind of fixated on algorithm trivia interviews and getting better and leveling up and all this stuff. And maybe every now and then pause and ask like, is this, is this all reasonable? <laughs> right. And, you know, think about what your options are in your career. And, you know, I guess that's what I would say is take stock every now and then, because it's easy to kind of get into a feedback loop within an organization where you think things are reasonable where maybe they aren't. Um, right. As for where to find me, probably the easiest place is deadtech.com, D-A-E-D-T-E-C-H. Um, I blog over there. There's information about my book and, um, let me see. I actually don't offhand know the easiest way to get into the hit subscribe community. Um, that's another thing. It's free to join for anybody who wants to. So I can give you a link afterwards if you have children. Kind of yes, to join yes the we community do. Too. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, me at deadtech.com. And then, you know, anybody who's listening is welcome to join the community. All right. Perfect. Eric, thanks for coming on the show. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. Wasn't that great? Next week. It will be 2022, and I don't know if I'll have Aaron on or maybe I'll be going solo, but I will be addressing you more directly in that one, given all of the, uh, the harrowing experiences I've had over the last few months. But for now, I just want to tell you it's been a great year on the local maximum, at least. Happy New Year, and I'll see you on the other side in 2022. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. To support the local maximum, sign up for exclusive content and their online community at maximum.locals.com. The local maximum is available wherever podcasts are found. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe on your podcast app. Also, check out the website with show notes and additional materials at localmaxradio.com. If you want to contact me, the host, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. Have a great week. Feel the power. 